We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you all. If you do have a Bible, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 7. Uh, And, you know, Luke is the longest gospel uh, out of the four in the scriptures that tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus. And the reason we're spending so much time walking through it is because there is nothing better that we could do in a season like this especially than look at the person and work of Jesus Christ and learn from him and learn what it means to go to him and to trust him and to follow him and to walk in his ways. And so we're walking step by step through the Gospel of Luke, and today we come to uh, a sermon that I'm calling The Expectations of Religious People. And if you've ever read through the Gospels, you constantly see Jesus interacting with religious people. And you constantly see the ways in which their expectations are, are, are inaccurate. They're not lining up with what Jesus has come to be about and do. I mean, it's just the whole time as you read through any of the four Gospels, you just see Jesus doing things that surprise people. He's not the Messiah that they expected. He doesn't come to do things in the way that they expected the Messiah would. He's still the Messiah sent from God. He's still the one who has come to save God's people and to reconcile people to God himself. But he comes and he goes about it in ways that are unexpected, ways that clash with some of the expectations, particularly of the religious folks. And you see, I think that it's also the case that today where we see Jesus at work and the ways in which we see him working surprise us as well. Because we are tempted to be just like the religious people we read about in the scriptures. You see, I don't know if you've ever read read the Bible like this, but when you read a narrative in scripture, you ought to ask yourself, where am I in this story? Where am I in what I'm reading here? That's how, that's how the Bible becomes personal. That's how it lands in life. As we say, how is this speaking not, how is Jesus confronting and, and speaking to, sure, the religious people that he's speaking to in this account, but also, how is he speaking to things in me that are similar today? And so we ask ourselves, where do I land in the story? And oftentimes, we want to place ourselves Uh, with the hero of the story, but in reality, we're not the hero. We're often the one that Jesus has come to confront and lovingly lead towards a better way. Oftentimes, we are the religious people who have expectations about God and what he's like and what he's come to do, and then also expectations about what we should live like and what things should look like with one another, and oftentimes, our expectations are not God's realities. 
And so today we're going to talk about the expectations of religious people. We're going to talk about some of the expectations that John the Baptist had. We're going to talk about some of the expectations that the Pharisees and the lawyers have. We're going to talk about expectations of religious people. And as I say that phrase, religious people, I want you to know that I'm not just talking about one kind of religious person. What we'll see as we get to the latter part of the message today is that there are two kinds of religious people. I hope we'll get there. We'll see. We may have to push it to next week, but we'll see how far we get. Um, Some of you who know me know that that's very possible. Um, But but there are two kinds of religious people. There are law-driven religious people and there are love-driven religious people. And whenever I say that, I don't mean that love and law are pitted against one another as though the law or the scriptures, the first five books of the Bible, as though those are bad or something like that. I mean those who have a true understanding of what the scriptures are teaching that involves them loving God and loving people as opposed to those who just try and do all the things, who set all the rules in place, and whose confidence is in rules rather than God himself. And so there's two kinds of religious people. When I say that phrase, religious people, and both those kinds of religious people have expectations about God and about other people. Oftentimes, those who are in the the kind of law-driven camp, those who are in the, the law-driven religious people group, uh, oftentimes their expectations are, are very, very different than uh, the reality that Jesus has come to present. And sometimes even those who are in the love-driven camp, still, we still misunderstand some things about what God is doing, and we still need Jesus to show us. That's exactly what I think we see happen with John the Baptist, and then also with the Pharisees and the lawyers today. And so Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18, and we're going to go down through verse 35, uh, but we may push 31 through 35 to next week. We'll see how far we get today. So there's three things that I want you to see about religious people. Religious people expect God to be different than he is. And so the question is, what do we expect from God? Secondly, religious people expect God to agree with them rather than to have to humble themselves to agree with God. And so the question is, who is right, you or God? And finally, we'll look at how religious people expect others to agree with them rather than to have to stop, listen, and seek to understand others. And so the question is, what kind of religious person are you? So that's where we're going this morning starting in verse 18 of chapter 7, and we'll read through verse 28 to start, and then we'll see how far we get today. Here's what Luke writes for us. He says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, 
The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Would you pray with me one more time? God, we come before you this morning as those who want to hear you speak, as those who come humbly before you, needing you to speak to us, needing you to expose the things in us that need to be exposed to to show us a better way. God, we need you to show us how to be the kind of religious people that, that truly love you and love others. Not the kind of religious people that are, are stuck up on, on rules and, and really ignoring what you're up to in the midst of all of this. But the kind of people who learn from what you say to us in your word. God, help us. Help us to see things as you see them this morning. And speak through your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of the Gospel of Luke, and we're jumping back to hear about this man named John the Baptist. And we haven't read about him in a few chapters now, but if you remember uh, early on, we did read about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet. He was a messenger sent from God to confront God's people with a message of repentance, See, John was a baptizer, meaning he would, he would dunk people in the river and submerge them completely and then bring them back out of the water. And it symbolized them turning from sin to God to be cleansed from sin. You see, John, he came preaching a message that confronted people, that said there's one coming and you need to be ready for what he's going to do. John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He came before Jesus to prepare people to hear from Jesus and for what Jesus was going to do and to call people to himself. And so John, Jesus says some things about him towards the latter end of the verses that we just read. He says, I tell you that among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he And so John, John is this prophet, this man sent from God to speak God's words to God's people. That's what a prophet is. John is this prophet, and Jesus says, he's not just merely a prophet. He says, yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
And he says he's, he's greater than any others who have been born of women. So he, he's a man that's greater than any other man. And then Jesus says, and yet he's not even close to the one who's born into the kingdom of God. So what's, what's he getting at here? Well, Jesus is talking about how John is, is kind of the end of an era. He is the last prophet that kind of falls underneath the, the old covenant pattern of God's way of relating to his people that we read about in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, we read throughout the scriptures there that there were these prophets sent from God to preach God's message to God's people, to confront them about the ways in which they had turned from God and walked away from him. And so John is a prophet in this kind of line, this kind of order, and yet the people have not heard from a prophet like this in in 400 years. And then John shows up on the scene, and John is going to be the last prophet before the Messiah comes, before this new covenant way of God relating to his people is instituted and brought about through the ministry of Jesus. And so John, he's this last of the old order, and, and he has this special place in redemptive history and God's plans and and so John he's not great and incredible because he was he was such an amazing person he's great and incredible because of the ways in which God worked through him and used him and so John is greater than any born of women any born under this old pattern of relating to God and he's the last of this order who's preparing the way for the new order for the new way in which God's going to relate to his people for the coming of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus makes this distinction. He says, John was a great man. He was a great prophet. But now, now you can be born into God's kingdom. Now you can be born again. Not just born from your mother's womb, but born of the Spirit of God with spiritual life in you, with the very presence of God bringing you to life spiritually. You can know God in a new, intimate way in and through Jesus Christ. And so those who are a part of this kingdom that Jesus is establishing, even though John was a great man, Jesus says those who enter straight into this kingdom... They're greater than he. And that's what's offered to you and I as a place in God's kingdom is Jesus himself is that the spirit of God could bring new life in us where once there was only death, when once there was only separation from God. And so Jesus, he begins to talk about John, and he contrasts it with the, the, new, the kingdom of God and the citizens of it. But then I want to go back and talk in verse 18 and following about what's happening here with John. So in light of understanding what Jesus is saying about John later in the passage, let's go back up to the top and let's understand a few things about religious people and our expectations of God. So it says in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. What that means is they, his disciples, John's disciples, have come back to John and they've reported to John what Jesus has been doing in his ministry so far. 
So they're reporting to John that Jesus has been going about doing all these miracles, all these incredible things, raising the dead to life, giving sight to the blind, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the reason they have to go and report to John is because where is John during all of this? Do you remember? John's in prison. John, this great man, this great prophet of God, the last of this old covenant order of prophets sent by God to speak to God's people, this great man of God, he's in a dark spot. He's in prison. He's been faithfully seeking out the Lord and speaking for the Lord and and doing ministry for the Lord, and the place he ends up is in a cell. He ends up behind bars. He ends up in a, in a dark room where he's locked up. This great man of God ends up in this really tough, dark spot in life. And man, friends, that ought to, that ought to be encouraging for us. There's some really encouraging things if, if, we'll, allow, if we'll allow ourselves to see John and, and his faith and then his questions about faith and also where he's at in life and his circumstances and see that he is still one who knows God and walks with God and who God blesses and loves. Jesus says this man who's in prison, he's greater than any other man that's been born. This man who's in a tough, dark spot in life. He's close to me. That means that just because we're in a tough, dark spot in life, it doesn't mean that God is not looking on us with favor. It doesn't mean that God does not care about us any longer. You see, sometimes we believe this lie that if we'll just follow Jesus, if we'll just do what God asks of us, then everything works out well. And it's not true. It's, it's what we call the, the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. It's not the real good news. It's saying that if you do the right things, then God will do good things for you. But if you screw up one time, then, then you're out of luck. That's just not what the gospel is. The gospel, the real good news is that all of us have screwed up. All of us have messed up time and time again. All of us have sinned against God and rebelled against his good plans and purposes for us. All of us have sinned against other people and done wrong to them. And and there's consequences for those things. But the good news is that though we are so messed up, Though we screw up so often, our relationship with God isn't dependent upon our actions, but upon the actions of Jesus Christ. You see, the Messiah had to come, the Christ had to come, Jesus had to come, because you and I can't do all the right things and be blessed by God through our actions, because we always fall short. That's why we needed Jesus to come. 
And so John, he's not this great man because he's an incredible person, though I have no doubt there were incredible things about who John was. I think we see some of those things as we read about him. But it's not, it's not John's merit, it's not his actions and his works that reconcile him to God. It's his faith in the coming Messiah and the coming one who would stand in our place. And so just because you're suffering in life, just because there's trials that come, just because you're in a dark, tough spot, it doesn't mean that you don't know the Lord closely. Sure, sometimes our own actions in rebellion against God bring us to a tough spot in life. And sometimes God uses those tough spots in life to wake us up, to get us to turn back to him. But John, that's not what we see playing out right here. Right here, what we see playing out is is John is in prison because he's been obeying God. He's been doing what God has asked of him. And so, Christian, don't think that following Jesus just means a life of ease. Sometimes it means a harder life. Sometimes it means that in terms of circumstances, if the world looked at your life, they wouldn't want any part of it. But the reason John does this and the reason so many of us walk through trials and suffering, we still love the Lord and we're still filled with joy is because we know the God who made all things and the God who has come to redeem us and the God who is one day returning to restore everything, to wipe every tear from our eyes and to make all things new. You see, and if you know this God, then you know that what's right in front of you right now is temporary. Then you know that even though what you're walking through right now is hard, he still loves you. He's still with you. He still cares for you. And he's bringing about a day when light will eliminate darkness. When we will be with him forever. And he'll wipe those tears away. And so John's spot in life is an encouragement to us. And then there's also something that's, that's really convicting, I think, before we even get to John's question, I just want to recognize one more thing about where he's at right now. You know why he's in prison? Do you remember? John is in prison because he went to the leader of his country and confronted him about his sexual immorality and confronted him about the ways in which he was rebelling against God and hurting other people. And Christians, if that is not convicting for us today, then I don't know what is. And I know that some of you right now know part of where I'm going, but I hope you'll be surprised at what I say next. I'm not just talking about Trump. I'm talking about how we seem to have this this inability to vote for and pray for and love 
those in leadership positions in high places of government and yet also be outraged by the ways in which they sin against God and the people they serve. You see, we think that if, whether you're on the Republican side or the Democratic side, I don't, I don't care. I honestly don't. Because here's the thing that I hope you see as you get close to Jesus is that you don't fit the boxes anymore. You don't fit perfectly in any of these places that the world has defined. There's always going to be ways in which you disagree. There's going to be ways in which, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, your citizenship there and your allegiance to King Jesus, it confronts your citizenship here. It confronts the ways in which the world says things should go. But I think, and and what breaks my heart so much right now is that we are so unlike John the Baptist. When we think about politics, when we engage our culture, when we think about our world, we are so unlike him. I hope God will use his life, his ministry to teach us, to shape us. Because John, here's the thing about John. I I think if if we had an opportunity to talk with John, John would say, Herod is is the leader of our country right now. He's our ruler. And he came from our people. And, and, and I want to love and support him well, and I, I pray for him regularly. But what he has done is not okay. The ways in which he has treated people, and particularly women, is not okay. And Christians, if we can't do the same thing, then we've got a problem. Because our faith ought to be able to help us do both of those things. We ought to be able to love sinners and also confront sin. And if we can't do that, we've got some serious problems ourselves and we need Jesus all the more. So I think when I look at John, I see some really encouraging things and I see some really convicting things. Because it doesn't matter where we land on the political, cultural spectrum. We've all done this at times. Where we've given our support and not confronted evil and sin where it shows up. It doesn't matter what side you're on. We've all done this. And and John, I, I think he provides such a good example for us. So I hope I hope you hear me this morning. Because here's the thing about this year, is this year confronts some things in us like other years haven't, I think. And it's gonna continue to do that. We've had a global pandemic, we've had racial tensions, and we're gonna have an election, a presidential election. And man, my prayer is that God just uses these things to continue to confront us in the places where we need to be confronted and to shape us and mold us to look more like Jesus however we choose to engage in these things. 
My hope is that we look more like Jesus than we do like the world. I think John's a great example of that. And the reality coming this, later this year in October is that we're going to be faced with a choice of voting for someone, whoever we vote for. I'm not trying to get you to vote for someone in particular. But whoever you do vote for, you're going to be voting for someone who you need to pray for and who likely needs to be confronted about the ways in which they've harmed people and sinned against God. We just don't have good options. We have some, we have some poor options and a difficult decision. And, and we need God's grace, we need his help, we need his wisdom. And I, and I hope that looking at John's life starts to bring some new categories where it doesn't just have to be full-fledged support without any confrontation. Christians, we can engage in a political, cultural environment without selling our souls, without sacrificing our convictions. Because here's the deal, usually we don't have a good moral choice. But we can still vote, we can still engage, we can still be present and active and still care most about what God cares about and still confront the things that we need to confront. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll stop harping on that, but I want you to see some more things about John. Look at, look at John's question. This is another really encouraging thing with John. He says, he's heard all these things that Jesus has been doing, all these incredible, miraculous works of God, and then he says, after his disciples tell him this, he says about Jesus, he sends them back to him because he's locked up. He can't go. And so he sends his disciples back to Jesus with this question, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And remember that John baptized Jesus and he saw the heavens open and a, a dove descend upon him and a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son. This is the one. You see, John heard God speak audibly. John saw God's spirit work in a way that you and I probably have never and never will. John experienced something in the presence of Jesus that you and I have not yet to see. And he still has questions. He still has doubts. He still looks at some of the things that are happening around him and he says, is this really the guy? Is this, is this really it? And friends, that's so encouraging for us because if we're honest, we've got questions and doubts too at different seasons, maybe not all the time. But I think if we're honest, every one of us at some point has a question like this. Is, uh, uh, when we see the ways in which God is working, oftentimes they're unexpected and surprising, and we have questions like John, where we're like, is, is, this, really, is this really him? Is this really you? You see, because here's the thing about God. We have to ask, what do we expect from him? 
Because oftentimes our expectations are not accurate. You see, John, he would have expected the Messiah to come and conquer the political landscape and judge sinners. That's what he expected. That's what the Jewish people expected. And Jesus, he, he comes on the scene and instead of conquering politically, he begins to establish his kingdom in the hearts of his people. He begins to reconcile people to himself. He begins to call them to follow him. And then he begins to, to care for the oppressed, to care for the hurting, to care for those neglected most by society. And Jesus, he, he shows up and he does what is least expected. But what is also still true of the Messiah. You see, because these things that Jesus says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Right now, Ken Hines has been leading a study of Isaiah on Sunday nights at five on, on the Facebook community group. And if you go read through Isaiah, and you read what Isaiah has to say about the Messiah, you'll read these things. You'll see these things that Jesus just said he was doing, that he, that he just did in front of John's disciples and then sent them back to tell him about. And so the way Jesus answers John's questions and doubts is with both actions and words. He, he does these things, and then he sends them back, those disciples back to John to say, here's what Jesus just did. And he knows that it'll, it'll click with John, because John knows Isaiah. John knows the other prophets. He knows that they spoke about the Messiah who would one day come to do these things, and even though maybe he's forgotten for a moment, Jesus' words will remind him that he is who he says he is. And so sometimes, sometimes God shows up and does things in a way that we didn't expect. But then he's very clear about revealing himself to us, that it is him at work, that it is him doing these things, that he is present, that he is working to bring about redemption and hope for his people. And I think that even in our day, we'll look around and we will see that Jesus is at work in places we didn't expect. That he's still caring for the hurting. He's still caring for the oppressed. He's still caring for the neglected. He's still caring for those who, outside of him doing something on their behalf, have no hope. Did you notice that about what he said he's done here? That each one of those groups of people, if Jesus doesn't do something for them, they've got no hope. Because society's not gonna help them. The lepers were untouchable. The blind, there's nothing you could do for them. The deaf, same thing. The poor, Man, they worked hard every day, but they had no way to get themselves out of the situation they were in. 
And Jesus, when he shows up, he says, I've come to care for these people. I've come to bring redemption, to bring hope, to bring life, to bring sight to the blind, and, and to let the deaf hear, and to raise and, and heal the dead and, and the lame, and to touch the leper that nobody else wants to touch. Is he Jesus? He, he shows up and he does things that we don't expect. Here's the last thing that I'll say about the way that we as evangelicals engage with politics is that oftentimes we still expect the Messiah to bring about a political kingdom. We still, some, for some reason, we still tend to drift into this idea that what Jesus was about is conquering the cultural landscape, the political landscape. And what Jesus was about is he came and instead of doing those things, he began to reconcile hurting, broken, sinful people to himself. And one day, yeah, he's going to return. He's going to establish a very physical kingdom. But right now, that kingdom is established in spiritual ways in the hearts of men and women and children. And then, with that kingdom mindset, with the kingdom of God, with us being part of it spiritually, then we engage in earthly, worldly kingdoms with new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new life in us. And it shapes how we interact. It shapes how we love. It shapes how we speak into things. But it's often unexpected. It's often surprising, the ways in which Jesus works. So ask yourself, what do you expect from God? What do you expect God to show up and do? And then look at Jesus and say, is it what Jesus has come to do? Or not? Or are we trying to bring about something that Jesus has already promised he's going to bring about one day instead of doing what Jesus has asked us to do today? I can't answer that question for you. But you can ask God. You can ask him, God, would you show me what, I, what I'm expecting of you? what my view of you really is and, and help me to see is it, is, it, is it the view of you that you've revealed to us in scripture? You see, John, this, this account of John and his disciples and what Jesus has been doing, it has so many things for us, so many encouragements, so many convicting things and so many ways that it confronts our expectations and then provides hope because God is at work in the mess. One last thing on this point. Jesus responds to John's question and his doubts with action. It says in verse 21, in that hour he healed many people. So before he sends the disciples back with words, he does something. So when you're interacting with those who 
who just don't get this Christianity thing yet. It's not bad to to speak. It's not bad to speak truth into people's lives, to, to have conversations about those questions they have and, and reason with them about it. That's not bad to do. But is it the only thing? Or in the way in which you engage with people who don't yet understand it, do you demonstrate who Jesus really is through your actions as well? Do your actions demonstrate the truth of your words, of the things that you say? You see, here, the reason I'm standing here today is because God used a believer in my life who, yeah, yeah, it was my grandmother. Yeah, she told me the truth about God growing up. She continued to, to speak truth into my life, and I'm so thankful that she did because when I finally came around, I had somewhat of a framework for a few things. But it wasn't just her words that led me to believe. God used her actions to show me that what she was saying about Jesus was true. God used the actions of, of this old grandmother to speak into this depressed teenager's life. I went through this six-month or so period in which I was so depressed that I didn't want to. I didn't want to eat. I couldn't sleep. I didn't know up from down or, or what, how to even start to step forward in life. And it wasn't just the words that my grandmother spoke to me from Scripture. It was the fact that when I would call her after waking up from nightmares in the night and not being able to sleep, and I would get up not thinking that I could get my clothes on and go to school that day, I would call her at an ungodly hour in the morning, and she'd already be awake praying for me. She would have already laid out verses and, and words of encouragement to send me throughout the day. She would have already been thinking about me, and she was doing things to care for me. And, it, and God used those actions to show me that her words about Jesus were true that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really does care for the hurting, that he really does care for the broken, that he really does want sinners to turn to himself and be forgiven and reconciled to God. That he really does want to speak life and hope and joy into people's lives in the midst of darkness. And so dear actions show that Jesus is who he says he is even if it's not who people expect him to be. Let's move on to the second point here. We're definitely not getting to point three, sorry. Next week. So we've seen that religious people expect God to be different than he is, and so we've asked the question, what do you expect from God? What do you expect him to do and be like? And then we ask, and then we say religious people expect God to agree with them and so the question is, who is right, you or God? Notice with me, after Jesus has told them in, verse, in verses 18 through 28 about John the Baptist, it goes on in 29 and 30, we read this. It says, when all the people heard this, so when all the people who were gathered around hearing Jesus speak and seeing Jesus perform miracles, when they heard Jesus' words about John the Baptist and the tax collectors too, they declared God just 
And so let me translate that for us. The people who were least expected to be close to God, the everyday average people, and then even the people who were most sinful and despised by society, the tax collectors, they, they, they worked for the Romans. The Jewish people hated them. And yet, and, and yet these most sinful men who took advantage of others for the Roman oppressive government, it clicks. It makes sense for them. They hear Jesus speaking and they understand. And so they declare God just. And then we read that having been baptized with the baptism of John, they have declared God just. Then in verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, so the religious people, the people who are supposed to know God the best, look at what it says. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so here's the deal. You and I, we will either declare God to be just and good and right and true. And then we'll be declared just by God through the person and work of Jesus. Through our faith in him. Or we'll attempt to declare ourselves just. And to walk our own way rather than his. There's two options in life. There's God's way or yours. Who is right, you or God? You'll either say, God is right and I have been wrong and thank God for his grace and his redemption and his hope. And you'll trust him and walk with him. Or you'll say, no, my way's better. I, I'm right about this. And you'll walk in your own way. There's two options. Either God is right or you are. And religious people, they often get caught up in all the things that they know. And so they don't declare God to be just. Instead, they try and declare themselves just. They try and declare that they know what is right and wrong, that they know the best way, that they are wiser than others. And so the question is, are you going to be the one that looks at God and says, God knows better than I do. God is just, God is good, God is gracious and merciful, and he's out for my good. And I'm going to trust him with my life and I'm going to follow Jesus and walk with him. Knowing that I don't see things clearly all the time. That my expectations of God and other people, that sometimes they're amiss and that I need Jesus to show me a better way. Or are you going to continue to live life trusting in yourself, justifying yourself, instead of accepting the free gift of justification offered to you in Jesus Christ. So what do you expect from God? And who's right? You or him? Are you gonna be the kind of religious person that continues to try and justify your own actions and ways 
Are you going to be the kind of religious person that truly loves God and people and tries to humble yourself before him and to learn how to follow him more closely, resting in his grace and what he's done for you rather than what you attempt to do for him or for yourself? You'll either declare God just and trust in the actions of Jesus on the cross for you or you'll declare yourself just and trust in your own works and your own actions and your own morality and ways of life. It's the hard two options. I'm going to pray for us. And next week we'll jump into a little bit more about these two kinds of religious people and we'll see uh, a few more things. Father, we often don't expect you to work in the ways in which you do. And part of me is excited about the ways in which you just continue to surprise us. You continue to work in ways that we don't expect, but ways that bring about our good and that bring about redemption for hurting, broken, sinful people like us. God, help us to see things with your eyes, to see through a scriptural lens. God, would you take our expectations and would you shape them over this next year? Would you help our expectations to come more in line with who you are and what you're doing in our lives and in our world? Would you help us to be more like Jesus? God, would you help us even to be more like John? What an example of faith, of faithfulness, of, of courage, of love, of wisdom. So God, help us as we trust in you to become more like you. God, for my friends this morning who are listening and, and they're asking that question about which way they're going to go. God, I pray that your spirit would would renew them, would make them alive in Christ, that they would walk with you and trust in you alone. God, bring us to our knees before you, humble us before you, and help us to walk in your ways. Because we need your grace to do it. We need you to empower us and help us and show us the way. So God, we trust in you this morning. And we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.